All right, James chapter 4. Let me begin by saying today that this one uh, requires a seat belt. So if you have a spiritual seat belt, you need to fasten it because it will be bumpy. And <clears throat> this text is tough in a couple of different ways. Number one, it's tough because uh, there are a number of verses here that are difficult to understand. And it's also tough because once we understand them, whew, James has got a lot to say. <coughs> now, structurally speaking, it is similar to last week. It begins with a rhetorical question, and James uses that to illuminate the problem in this passage, which is multifaceted. And it, to use the imagery that we've talked about over the past few weeks, it's, it's kind of like an iceberg. There's the tip of the iceberg, the sin on the outside, and that's going to come to us in verse 1 here, and it's going to be a particular type of <coughs> quarreling and fighting. But then, immediately, he moves into verse 2 and goes all the way down to verse 5, talking about the rest of the iceberg, the sins under the sin, the rest of the story, so to speak. Then in verse 6, we're going to get a little bit of relief, <coughs> and then in 7 through 10, we're going to get some very practical help in understanding how to live this out. Let's look at verse 1. What causes quarrels and fights among you? And the root word that he's using there for quarrels and fights is actually wars and fights. And that seems to really capture the raw nature of what is happening here. Uh, it's also interesting in the Greek that James' use of compressed language, the verbs are deleted here. So it could literally be translated something like this, from where wars and where fights among you. And when you see that kind of language, it illustrates just the immense passion from which he is speaking. And then right after asking that question, he pulls a page out of Jesus' playbook, and he asks another question. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And that word passion that we have there is the word hedone, which is where we get our English word hedonism. And the idea there with that set of thoughts is that pleasure is the highest good in all of life. Now, of course, when the Bible talks about pleasure, uh, it's not always a bad thing. There's all kinds of good pleasure that we are to experience in this life. But when that pursuit of pleasure becomes our central focus, we go from a good thing to a God thing, which is a bad thing. And so what James is saying here is the tip of the iceberg, the top of the sinful problem here, is this type of fighting. But what's driving it <clears throat> is this warring passion within the people that are there. Now, verse 2, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. And what's really interesting about this here is you would want to think, oh, James is speaking figuratively here, and it's possible that he is, but there's no real evidence to say either way whether he is or isn't, so it's at least possible that there have actually been some kind of murder take place within this group of scattered house churches. Now, surely we hope that's not the case, but we see how strongly Jesus speaks about verbal murder over in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, if you've called someone a fool, it's, it's, it's as if you were uh, killing them in your heart, so to speak. And so <clears throat> James takes this quite seriously. And then the hits keep on coming. Look at the rest of verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so what he's illuminating here is not just this 
uh, interpersonal situation. It's not just a speech problem, but now it's a prayer problem. And there's a couple of different schools of thought on what he's saying here. Some, some people say that it's, it's a Christian that starts praying. They're praying for very selfish things, and then they realize, hey, i got to cut this out. <clears throat> and they stop themselves, and that's why they stop praying. Another school of thought, and I think I kind of line up more with this one because of verse 3, is it is a, uh, a Christian that is praying, but they are praying for, to use a modern analogy, a Lamborghini to get to church. Because, you know, we got to have this $250,000 car to get from point A to point B so I can hear about Jesus. So, Lord, please give me a Lamborghini. And, of course, the Lord is not going to answer that prayer <coughs> because it is very selfish and self-focused. And uh, it is clearly something to be spent on the passions. But I do think this gives us an opportunity to stop and, and kind of look at ourselves and our own prayer life and kind of ask this kind of question. When we pray, what is it that we're praying for? And more importantly, why are we praying for that in the first place? For example, if we are praying that God would increase our financial bottom line in our family, I think that's actually a fine prayer because there's plenty of expenses. But what is the motive? Is it so that we can go buy more stuff and heap up more of our treasures here as opposed to in heaven? Or is it so that we would better provide for our family, be more generous to the church and other ministries, so on and so forth? So the what matters, but I think the why matters even more. So when we evaluate our prayers, let's always keep that in mind. What are we asking for, and why are we asking for it? Now, verse 4. <clears throat> and at this point, the passion really begins to overflow. Look at it. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with or enemy of God. Now let's untangle this. So let's start with <coughs> what he's not saying here. He's not saying that you can't be friends with people who are in the world. He is not prohibiting friends, friendships with non-Christians, so on and so forth, because in all honesty, how are most of those people going to come to know Jesus? It's through friendships with Christians, that they can share the gospel with them, they can see their life, the gospel on display, so on and so forth. So he's not decrying that. But what he is speaking against is friendship with the world in the sense of <coughs> the cosmos, the world system that lies under the power of Satan. It is friendship with that set of ideas and values and priorities and behaviors that leads to disruption in our relationship with God. So the idea here would be <coughs> that we can't be friends with both God and the world. We can't be friends with both God and the world. And, and one way to think about this is what he's really calling out here is what most of us would call worldliness, that we can't fight under two banners. We can't have a divided allegiance, and then he'll talk about this more in just a few verses. But he's saying here, you can't act like the world, talk like the world, work like the world, <coughs> do relationships and marriage like the world, parent like the world, and think that that's okay if you are a Christian. You can't prioritize the things that the world prioritizes. You can't build your life on the shaky foundation that the world would build on and think that that's okay. Because as Christians, where is our foundation to be? It's to be on God himself. 
What are our priorities to be? They are to be defined by Scripture, not by the culture. What are we to (coughs) value the most in this life? It is to be Jesus and the priorities that Jesus would lay out. So I think a good question we could ask ourselves here would be something like this. Are we better friends with God or the world today than we were one year ago? Are we better friends with God or the world today than we were a year ago? Now, if you're like me, I find that question to be uncomfortable because I think most of us, all of us, would want to say we're better friends with God, but a passage like this, especially with the the force that James gives us, look back at verse 4 there, you adulterous people, and in my translation, it has an exclamation point. Of course, that's not in the original language, but as the translators (coughs) carry this forward for us, it captures the passion with which James is speaking. This is very Old Testament in nature, that he is calling out to his people just like God called out through the prophets of old to the, 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 the wayward Israelites to call them back to their first love in God. And so as we ask that question... If we want this text to have its full effect, we need to hear the weight of it. We need to hear it in the way James said it, with this exclamation mark, passion, and rescue mission language. And we need to allow this text to shine the spotlight of conviction upon us so that we might hear what God would have to say. Now, look at verse 5. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he is made to dwell in us. Now, this is also uh, a difficult verse. In fact, some would argue this is the most difficult verse in the book of James to interpret because when it says, when the Scripture says, we immediately go, okay, there's a specific Old Testament reference that he is calling out here. That's actually not the case. There isn't a verse that exactly deals with this. But what he seems to be saying is he speaking to the general theme of God's jealousy to which I just referred? You see that in Exodus 20, chapter 34, Zechariah 8, so on and so forth, that God passionately loves his people. He set apart a people for himself to be his own possession. And then now he is applying that in the New Testament context with this crowd and, of course, with us. Now, part of what also makes this difficult is that word spirit there that you have in the second part of the verse What is that referring to? Is that referring to the human spirit or the Holy Spirit? And I believe, as do others, he's talking about the Holy Spirit here because it fits with the context of what he's saying. And he's saying that basically here's what's happening, that when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit moves into your life. He seals you once and for all, and he is always drawn back toward heaven, so to speak. He's always shining the spotlight on Jesus. He's helping us understand the scriptures. He is reminding us of our true identity in Christ. And so he is yearning jealously over that spirit, God the Father, if you will here, that now lives within us. And so this is another undergirding of James's passionate plea in verse 4. And then finally we get to verse 6. After all the conviction, all the indictments, all the hard questions, all the rebuke, it says this, but he gives more grace. 
And therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And what we're talking about here, we're not talking about saving grace. We're talking about sanctifying grace. We're talking about the grace that we need to obey God. We're we're talking about what Augustine picks up on when he says, God gives what he demands. And so in thinking about this, They are indicted in verse 1, they're called out for their quarreling and fighting, and then he speaks to these problems here uh, about the murder in the heart, the murder in the speech, the problem in the prayers. Then you get this blanket statement here about adulterous people, the Spirit is within you, come back to me. And just when it seemed it can't can't get any worse, James presses the release valve and reminds us of the grace of God that we have. And when we think about this idea, let's make sure we understand what, what, we're talk, what we're talking about here with grace. I think that simple acronym that we've used over the years is actually quite helpful. It's probably the best way to understand it. God's riches at Christ's expense. This unmerited favor that we now have with God because of the full and finished work of Christ. And the way we get in on that grace is through humbling ourselves. Now, he's going to make this even more explicit in verse 10. But here in verse 6, he's calling forward this idea to say, the grace is what you need, the grace is what you have in Christ, and if you want to fully experience it, walk away from the pride that is causing all these other problems and humble yourself and get this grace. Now, This is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is getting at. Hebrews 4.16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Paul talks about this, Romans chapter 5, verse 20. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And I really like what John 1.16 has to say here. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And what he's really getting at there is almost this picture of grace heaped upon grace. So to to use a a modern analogy here, whatever your favorite food is, let's say for all of us here, it's ice cream. Even if it's not, it is today. And you get a scoop when you become a Christian. And then you get another scoop as you grow as a Christian. And then you keep getting scoops and scoops and scoops and scoops until your bowl runneth over it's now on the table, it's on the floor, there is a, a river of ice cream running out the door, and you're not going to get spiritual diabetes. This is the kind of grace that we need. Grace upon grace upon grace. And I think the reason why James brings that up here is because he knows how strong and how much uh, he, he has laid upon them, and he is hearing within them, so to speak, that they need to be encouraged in the midst of their rebuke. And friends, we do too. So if you want to take this as a principle, let me give it to you like this. There is grace for whatever you face. There is grace for whatever you face. And in their context at this moment, it would have been this fighting, it would have been this verbal murder, it would have been these prayer problems, so on and so forth. And he's saying in the midst of all that, there is still grace for you. You've gotten yourself into this hole, but the grace of God is there with you. And the grace of God can get you out of this hole. 
And friends, is that not an important word for us today? Because every one of us, we come in here today, and thankfully we're not fighting like this church would have been. But we all have problems. And you need to know that there is grace for whatever you face today. Whether it is an ongoing struggle with pornography, if it's prayer problems like we have here, if it's people problems at the office, if it's weighing anxiety that you just can't seem to shake, there's grace for you. If there's a, a struggle within something that you just can't seem to get a handle on that, that nobody else knows about, there's grace for you. There's broken relationships maybe in your home, maybe in the extended members of your family. There is grace for what you face there. And so this verse is very important in understanding this passage, but it's also very important for you in understanding your life. Because if you are in Christ today, no matter how far you wander, the grace of God is there to bring you back. Now, do we use that in some kind of, uh, now this means I can do whatever I want kind of way? Of course not. Paul addresses that. He says, God forbid on that kind of thinking. But we need to hear the weight of the first five verses and the relief that verse 6 offers. We need to take sin deadly seriously. And we need to take grace even more seriously. We need to lay hold of this image that John gave us, that, that Paul gives us, that, that the writer of Hebrews gives us, that James gives us, that there is grace heaped upon grace for whatever we face. So let me ask this question. Where do you need that grace most today? I know you believe it, but where do you need to appropriate it and apply it in your particular struggle? Let that encourage your hearts today, and that would be a great thing to talk about later in community group this week. Now, let's move into the rest of the passage, verses 7 through 10. What James is going to do here is he's going to get very practical I don't have to make much application uh, beyond what James makes for us today because these commands, uh, this is kind of a weird analogy, but it's almost like, a, like an assault rifle that throws off a whole bunch of bullets in, in one pull of the trigger. And this is obvious in the English, but it's even more obvious in the Greek because they just pop out so quickly, and James is clearly trying to make this point passionately. Look at verse 7. He says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And so really what's happening here, that if this was a coin, this is two sides of the same coin. And on one side of the coin, he's saying, Submit to God. And let me just say, this flies in the face of everything that we are taught in the culture and sometimes, to be honest, it flies in the face of what is being taught in many churches. Because what does our culture say? Our culture says you need to be out to get yours, you need to take care of yourself, and everybody else can take care of themselves. We need to manifest our future by speaking these things into existence, so on and so forth. Like, if the culture was writing this, it would be assert yourselves before God. That's how you get ahead in this world. But this is not the culture. 
And God's economy is different. Jesus' kingdom is upside down, and so the way to go up is to go down. The way to move forward with God is move backward in regard to yourself. It's to submit yourself, to fully surrender, to put yourself fully under the leadership of God. That's where the real joy is. That's where the real life is. That's where the real peace and purpose and so on, that's where the real good things are. And then the other side of that coin is to resist the devil. And this is an interesting language uh, that is used, or an interesting word. It's a military metaphor. It means to stand against as in combat. And the, the, the language here, that you can't read this and not think about what Paul says over in Ephesians 6 uh, when he talks about uh, the same thing there, this verse 12, for example. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And what's, what he's talking about there even is it's a very personal fight. The word wrestle that he uses there it suggests hand-to-hand combat. And so what he's getting at here is submit yourself, surrender to God, but then you fight like heaven to resist what the devil is trying to do. And it's not enough just to look and go, oh, yeah, the devil, he, he does some things. He says some bad things. He whispers some things in my ear. Mm, I'm against that. No, you got to fight. You can't be against it in principle. You got to be against it in practice. And let me tell you something. You don't have to go looking for him because he's looking for you. You don't, if you do nothing, you are doing something. If you don't actively resist the devil, he will take you over in some way. And so, again, like I've always taught about this, we don't need to be uh, afraid of him, but we need to be aware of him and his schemes. And as we've talked about this in the past, one of the ways I think that we resist the devil is we got to figure out what, what our particular weaknesses are, where the chinks in our armor are. Because there's some sins and some temptations that are going to be common to all, uh, all women or all men, all students, all singles, different phases and places in life, we, we brush into different things. But how those particular things come at us, there's all kinds of things that go into that. Our personal history, uh, our own personality, so on and so forth. And so what your resistance to the devil may look like, it might not be exactly the same as your brother or your sister or your husband or your cousin you got to figure out for you with the things you're being tempted with, what does it look like to submit myself to God in this area? And what does it look like to resist the enemy in this particular area? But this also comes with a promise, doesn't it? It doesn't say resist the devil and, well, good luck. It says resist the devil and he will flee from you. And without getting too far out into the weird world here, I think Christians, especially from our tradition, underestimate the power that we have to walk in the Spirit and to see God radically show up in real time to help us in real situations. And so we need to be proactive. We need to do all the things that we need to do. I'll talk a little bit more about this in verse 8. But then we need to, when we sense that something is happening, hey, I'm having these crazy thoughts, I'm being tempted in ways that I haven't been tempted in a long time. Lord, help me, Satan, get away. 
There's some great stories. Uh, one from Martin Luther. I mean, I wasn't there, so I can't verify if this is exactly true, but it seems true, everything else I know about Luther, that he's trying to translate the Bible at one point, and he throws his inkwell across the, uh, across the room, makes a huge mess, of course, and he is resisting the devil because he felt opposition in that moment from what God was calling him to do. Now, I'm not saying you need to uh, throw your fountain pen across the cubicle, yell at the devil, that might get some uh, interesting looks and a pink slip. But what I am saying here is don't be duped into thinking that spiritual opposition against you is not out there. It is. So submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he's got to go. Now, verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Let me just give this to you in a single word here. This is prayer. No, it's not just prayer, but I think if you can't remember anything else, that's what this is about. Because in prayer, is that not what we're doing? That we are coming before God and we are saying, Lord, thank you that you love me in Christ. Here are my needs. Please help me in this particular area of sin and struggle, so on and so forth. And I think a great image here that, that, that really shows us kind of what this looks like uh, is, is the story of the prodigal son. Now, again, that's not exactly what the story is about, but it illustrates what this looks like. Because what happened toward the end of the story where the, 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 the wayward son finally gets his act together, comes to his senses, he moves toward the father, and what happens? The father takes off running toward him. And so I think part of what we need to remember here in the spirit of what he's saying here about drawing near to God and he will draw near to you is that some of us need to be more convinced today that God really will come to help you when you ask for His help. Some of us need to be reminded today that if we even let out the smallest peep, the smallest squeak, the smallest broken prayer, friends, God is already there. He is already ready to help, and He is grabbing you up in His arms, and He is caring for you as if you're the only child in His family. You submit yourself to God, you resist the devil, and you draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. He will not leave you hanging. Look at the rest of verse 8. James kind of turns back, a little, little pivot here, a little harder language. It says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And I think the reason why James kind of turns the heat back up here is because whatever was happening here in their situation, it must have been truly awful. I mean, again, it, it's possible someone could have actually been killed uh, in their midst. And so it also seems that between the lines here that, that they were not taking this very seriously. And so when he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, that obviously does harken back to the Old Testament ceremonial washing, so on and so forth. And for him to call them sinners really underscores just how serious this would have been. And this second word here, double-minded, we talked about this once before, it literally means two-souled. And it really describes this idea that they have a double allegiance to God and the world. So when you see this in context of what he was warning them of before, the sense of worldliness, he's really driving this point home that you cannot have it both ways. 
And then when he goes a step further and he says, be wretched, he's talking about the type of grief that one ought to experience when he falls into sin. Another way to translate this could be, be devastated. That there's a seriousness there, that there's, a, there's an understanding and an owning that we have defamed the glory of God, and we have truly hurt someone else in front of us. And so when he also says mourn here, he's talking about, this is a strong word, it's inner grief. And when he says weep, he's talking about the type of crying that happens in a funeral lament. And so the idea seems to be happening that they're quarreling and fighting, all these things are happening, all these awful things. And in the midst of that, he's, they're laughing about it. They're not taking it seriously at all. And so he's saying, no, you need to cleanse yourself of this, purify your hearts, get on the same page. You can't have it both ways and mourn and weep for your sin. And then finally here in verse 10, he draws it all together. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So in one way, if the tip of the iceberg is the quarreling and fighting, and then you have all this stuff underneath the iceberg, the bottom tip of the iceberg that underlies everything is what? It's pride. That's not far from what C.S. Lewis talks about when he says that pride is the mother of all sins. Because any time we are into any kind of spiritual disrepute, it's because we have put ourselves in the place that God alone should have, and we are now trying to exercise our own sovereignty that was never ours in the first place. And so the pathway to melt this entire iceberg that we're talking about here really is the path of humility. And this is important because Jesus himself basically said this exact same thing uh, on three separate occasions. Luke 18, Matthew 23, Luke 14, he says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself, will be exalted. And you think about Jesus himself, as Paul is talking about his experience in Philippians chapter 2, what does he get out there? He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at that name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So the way up, was the way down. And I want to close with this quote that I found in the Preach the Word commentary. Like always, they're a huge help to me throughout this message or any message. But I love the way they captured this here. The gravity of grace will always channel the rivers of divine favor to the lowly, to those who submit to God whose soul's momentum is away from the devil and toward God, who purify the inner and outer life, who mourn over their sins, and who obey the final summary command to humble themselves before the Lord so that God will exalt them.
What is the Lord saying to you through this passage today? I think one like this, it could be a variety of things. Is it to cut out the quarreling and fighting that's happening in some area of your life? Is it to think more carefully about what we're praying for and why we're praying for it? Is it to remember that there really is a spiritual war that we're all involved in that requires surrendering to Jesus and resisting the enemy? No matter what the specifics might be on some of the smaller issues, I know that the Lord is reminding of this. Verse 6, that there is grace for whatever it is you face. There's grace for any of those struggles that were named, any of the struggles that weren't named. And what we need to do to receive that grace today is simply receive it. It's come with our open, empty hands and receive the grace of God. And for some of us today, the way that begins is we become Christians. Maybe you've heard about Jesus for a while, but you're not yet a Christian, and the way you need to receive the grace of God today is, is through being saved. It's through turning from sin and trusting in Christ and being born again. And if that is stirring in your hearts today, in just a minute when the rest of us take communion, you hold off, but we want to help you take Christ. Grab one of us in the back. We want to, we want to see you meet Jesus today. For the rest of us who've already made that turn, where do you need the grace of God today? Where do you need to just open your hand and receive what the Lord has done for you? Whatever, whatever situation that may be, let's go before him now and let's pray. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this passage, for the warning against worldliness that it offers, for the specific help in so many different ways. And also this shining spotlight on the pathway of humility that leads us to this treasure of grace. Lord, we pray that you would move among us now, that you would speak to us and that we would see what only you can do. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.